The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. What's good, y'all? My name is Chris Milam, and I'm a singer-songwriter, songer-singwriter from Memphis, Tennessee. I'm joined in the studio today by the decorated, celebrated, bantam-weighted producer Gil. Gil, tell me this. On a scale of 1 to 12, how are you doing today? He's, uh, he's showing me a 6.5 on a scale of 1 to 12. 6.5, that's not doing too great. That's barely passing. Gil, you're being modest. I, folks, I'm going to let you in on something. Gil went to the West Memphis dog track yesterday, and he put down a saw buck on Nurse Please. That's the name of the dog. And he won $19,000. I saw him making it rain at IHOP this morning. He won big. Gil, you're sandbagging. You're doing better than six and a half. The Mix! is what you're listening to. It's an hour-long conversation with fellow artists and producers where I ask one simple question. What songs mean the most to you? My guest today is famed producer Jeff Powell, and we'll get to Jeff's mix in two turns of a rotisserie chicken. But first, the merch table. You've got to take a look at the merch table. There's all kinds of good stuff. First, Subscribe, rate, and review, y'all. Keep doing it. It takes 10 seconds, and it really helps me out, helps the show out, helps other people find the show. Just glancing at the numbers, I am shocked, honestly, by how many folks are already listening. So this is uh, really fun. Keep spreading the word. I appreciate it. Second, I want you to drop me a line, chris at chrismilam.com. I'm also easy to find on social media. And here's the deal, y'all. I want to ask you the same question I'm asking the guests. What song means the most to you? So fire back at me on social media or on email, and there are no wrong answers. What I'm going to do is take all of your answers, and uh, I'm kind of brainstorming things I can do with that later in the season, so stay tuned. Third, I should mention this more. I have an app. It's functionally my website, but it also has kind of exclusive stuff that you can't find anywhere else. So um, it's on iOS and Android. It's free. Just search my name, Chris Milam. You can hear this podcast there. You can also hear my music, new little demos as I'm working on them in the moment, lyrics, stray writing, photos, advanced ticket sales, tour dates, all that good stuff. So uh, go ahead and download the app. I'll keep you informed there. What else do we have on the merch table between the shot glasses and the baby onesies? Good God! It's an ad read. Folks. This mix is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash OAM. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. All right, y'all. One more look at the merch table. What do we have here? It is the best of from the Memphis Flyer. They have the awards coming up. They're taking nominations now. So go ahead and uh, fill out your ballot. They have a best podcast section. Fill out the mix with Chris Milam. They also have a Best Local Singer section. Go ahead and throw me in there, too. They have a Best Healthcare Provider section. Chris Milam, give it to me. Favorite brunch spot, Chris Milam. You name it, put me in all the fields. Let's game the system together. And finally, now, let's talk about Jeff Powell. If you don't know Jeff Powell's name, you certainly know his work. As a producer and engineer, his credits include Deep Breath, B.B. King, Lucinda Williams, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Allman Brothers, ZZ Top, Primal Scream, Afghan Wigs, Sharon Jones, Tonic, Big Star, and, oh yeah, 
Bob Dylan. In recent years, he started his own vinyl cutting business, Takeout Vinyl. He has, to put it simply, left an indelible mark on popular music. But, and this is something our conversation touches on, he doesn't leave a trademark on any one record. While some producers have a sonic calling card, for example, Phil Spector's Wall of Sound, Jeff Powell focuses his talent on serving the specific goals of that artist, that project, that song. When you hear a Big Star album produced by Jeff Powell, you hear Big Star, not Jeff Powell. In person, Jeff is simply an all-time great hang. He's quintessentially Memphis, big-hearted with a wicked sense of humor, kind but wry, a generous spirit, a bit of a shit-kicker, a natural storyteller. And strap in, y'all, because Jeff Powell's got stories. One final note, for his mix, Jeff sent me 10 songs. I also close every mix by asking the guest about a song of theirs I admire, so 11 total this time. You can listen to Jeff's mix on Spotify. That link and the full track list are also in this episode's liner notes. You can find Jeff on social media at Takeout Vinyl. Here now, the mix, Jeff Powell. I am so happy to be joined today by Mr. Jeff Powell. Jeff, how you doing? I'm doing great. Well, I'm glad to have you here today. Um, you mentioned in the lead up to this taping that uh, you spent a lot of time and consideration thinking of your mix. What's that process look like? Lighting candles, burning incense? <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's just, you know, um, my my general schedule in life is very weird because of the hours I keep in the studio. Um, I'm primarily a vinyl record cutter these days. Um, so almost, I mean, there's four nights a week where I can, it's all based on shipping because I have to ship them out and they have to turn into metal parts within 24 hours. So I typically work until nine, you know, cut off time at FedEx, which is 930 or if it's an emergency, I make midnight runs to the airport. Then mm-hmm. I come home and then I've got to do all my paperwork. And, and so I'm, my hours are very, very much night owl type hours. So usually things calm down for me, you know, when I'm just chilling out late at night and listening to music or. And I'm guessing you're listening to vinyl in those moments. A lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I want to, let's start with uh, the first song that kind of piqued my interest when I saw your mix. Uh, I want to talk about the Edwin Hawkins singers. Oh, happy day. Let's start there. Well, um, I'd heard that song a lot, just, I don't know, uh, as, as maybe background or at different events in my life, or it was just on, but I'd never certainly analyzed the recording or delved into it too much until I was listening to it in headphones one night, and Edwin Hawkins' voice, the lead singer, is panned all the way to one side and the choir is on the other which seemed very strange, but I'd never heard it that way in the air, just in in the speakers and stuff. And there's, again, from an engineering point, some of these songs are just songs that I, most of them are songs that I love, but for different reasons. Um, I try to flip the engineering button off a lot of times. It's hard to do, but 
you know, I don't want to sit around and analyze everything that gives me joy. It kills the joy of listening. But this struck me in particular. Um, one of the one of the things I fell in love with this song and is my wife turned me on to it and she wanted this played at our wedding. <laughs> and it wasn't that recording played at our wedding, but our wedding was mostly a concert with some wedding thrown in there, you know. So there were <laughs> right. there were a lot of our friends there and uh when we walked down the aisle, Oh Happy Day was the song that the whole congregation, all our friends and everybody was clapping and joining hands. That's what we walked down the aisle to instead of the traditional dun 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 dun. Right, you know? right. And so it has a lot of special meaning to me in that way. But back to the analysis of the recordings, whenever night I happened to have headphones on, it was really odd because it was pulling my ears in a different way because of the panning choices they made. But it also is completely, when the choir comes in, it's completely distorted. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not a good recording at all, but it's also perfect um, right. because it makes it makes me feel. Um, I'm by no means a gospel choir expert. I have recorded a few in my career. It strikes me as the the way that's ended up in a lot of modern recording. Um, I don't understand. It took me years why we go to such great lengths to separate all the elements of these recordings out and isolate everything and record them, fix every mistake, and then we're supposed to put it all back together. We're tearing it apart and putting it back together, and that's supposed to where we're missing the point, man. Yeah. And that's some of my favorite songs that you'll see on this list are older recordings because that's not what they did. Mm. They didn't have the technology or ability to do it. And so as you as we go through the, some of this list, I think that's a prime example of um, a bit of a naive recording, mm. but it just uh, it's just it just uh, evokes emotion in me. I just think it's you can feel the real power the other thing that's amazing about that song is the dynamics it gets so quiet right and so loud it's a barrage and that's something else that in modern recordings because they want the overall volume loud everything has been smushed together in this condensed little box right and brightened up so much that it's just absolutely fatiguing so i will take this weird panning song that's full of distortion on an emotional sense that makes me feel over any of those modern recordings. Right. It means, it means a lot to me. So, yeah, that was something that struck me just listening back the last couple of days is when the choir kicks in, as you say, and it's distorted and kind of a mess uh, from an engineering perspective. It's also, as a listener, just overwhelming. And that's what the song's supposed to evoke in you. Um, that's what gospel's really supposed to evoke in you. And I do think that in people kind of go down the rabbit hole in modern recording of trying to make the ideal Frankenstein mar monster with exactly. all the tools at our disposal and pro, and pro tools. But while kind of, you know, performing plastic surgery, you kind of lose the soul of the thing sometimes. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Another thing that's crossed my mind, if you listen to the chord structure, Todd Rundgren totally ripped it off for I Saw the Light. Oh think, think about it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, I mean, when you listen to things for the first time, are you able still naturally to listen just kind of as a fan or a casual observer? Or I try to. Okay. It depends on my state of mind. But, um, you know, growing up, I grew up, it's it's kind of like, a, what was that? Um, 
a mighty win, that movie, mm-hmm. one of my favorite lines is the girl's talking and she says, I was abused as a child, mostly musically. And that was, <laughs> I grew up in a very musical household. My mother was an elementary school music teacher, but I mean, we're talking, you know, gym neighbors and, and ugh, just terrible mm-hmm. stuff that, you know, right. just cheesy. We didn't have any cool records. My older brother didn't have he was a sports dude so you know he had a few records but it wasn't the classical my brother turned me on to led zeppelin man right I'd steal his <laughs> records and go listen in my room i my i had a very narrow very narrow window of what i listened to in in my high school years and it was mostly what my friends were listening to or um i grew up in bowling green missouri so uh, that's like 70 miles north of st louis so we okay. could kind of get kc radio which was a classic rock station so a lot of the stuff that sometimes it would come in, some sometimes it wouldn't. Sometimes we'd literally get in our car and drive twenty miles south to just to hang out on a country road and right. drink beer and listen to Casey. That sounds like a Mellencamp song. It yeah. sounds like every Mellencamp song. <laughs> exactly. um, would you have heard "Oh Happy Day" growing up? Did you grow up in the church? I was raised in a Methodist church. My parents were religious. Yeah, um, but no, I mean, you know, my town was three thousand people. And the first time I heard any uh, gospel music, I mean, we were segregated. The mm. uh, And it's a real different thing from the way things are. We're still segregated in the South on Sunday mornings, mm. you know, but they're so even more to an extreme. And it was actually a Boy Scout project where we were putting a ceiling in one of the black churches. We were helping them do that. I didn't know what, I, but they had me climbing around handing tools to somebody on a <laughs> scaffolding. But I was there one night when they had choir practice. Mm. And it struck me as like, this is awesome. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be back on the back row of church drawing cartoons of fat ladies, you know, and not paying attention when, you know, in church, in my church, right. if I had music like this. And it also struck me as how some of the same songs they were singing were half the speed that we were doing it. It really struck right. me as weird, but they'd take their sweet time and pound on the piano and they'd all join in and the clapping, the joy that was there right. it was completely devoid of the monotone <laughs> you know methodist you know readings like we are not worthy we are such sinners we're sorry and i, I think remember we grew up in the same that, church yeah and i kind of remember going a couple times like hey man i'm chanting this stuff i'm reading but i i, I can't think of anything i really did wrong this week i right. don't think i why am i saying this right. i didn't do anything this week <laughs> right or make up for it next week. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I, although I didn't grow up um, in that tradition, uh, music, gospel music in that tradition, um, without fail, moves me every single time because I love it. Because it's aiming to kind of enact the faith that, like those kind of joyless readings <laughs> in our Methodist church, don't really do. It's just kind of rote and ritualized, but it's lacking soul, literally and figuratively. Right. The last gospel thing that I recorded was the the uh, Tennessee Mass Choir, and it's for this the not the most recent St. Paul and Broken Bones, but the one previous to that. I engineered that record. It was funny because Paul, the lead singer, they were getting ready to put a choir on it, and uh, I'm like, dude, if you're going to do that, you got to. We were recording in Nashville, and you've got to come to Memphis, man, and take your pick. Um, He goes, what could we do it at Stacks at the museum? And I went. Well, you know, it's not really a studio anymore. It's a museum. He goes, yeah. And I go, and it's 
you know, not really the building that it was. It was torn down and rebuilt as a replica. And he goes, yeah. <laughs> and I said, you can't use, you can't call it Stax. You have to call it the Stax American Music of Soul Museum. He goes, yeah. Mm-hmm. I went, well, it's perfect. Let's do it there. <laughs> you know? And y'all did. And so, yeah, we'd had three songs from the Tennessee Mass Choir that okay. joined in on his song. And it was just an amazing, amazing session. So when you get to be part of it, another big one was uh, for the Great Debaters record. Uh, we had Billy Rivers and the Angelic Voices of Faith in to Arden as a choir. And you just, it's just so powerful when that is unleashed in a room. I mean, the, the walls vibrate. It's a oh, yeah. different musical vibration when they, when, I, when they open it up and go for it. And it's just an unbelievable feeling. So. Well, you mentioned that you spend the bulk of your time lately um, cutting vinyl. If you meet someone at a cocktail party, what do you say you do for a living? I tell them I'm mainly a vinyl cutter now. Okay. Okay. Because I, I, I get the question, what does a producer do? And of course, that's how I came to meet you originally um, and knew your body of work before we even met uh, was on the production side um, and engineering side. If someone asks you what the role of a producer is, how would you characterize that job? Um, you're just in charge of everything without appearing to be so, I think, <laughs> if, the good, if you're good at it. Um, my my definition of that um, changed from when I started. Um, and I can't even define the moment when I really started being more of a producer. But my initial thought was I needed to put my hand on everything. I needed to try everything weird. I needed to, you know, be bold, and uh, which I still try to be. But I just am. I don't try to be, mm. you know. Um and stay out of the way, cast the right characters to make it happen. And, uh, you know, the psychology of it, too. Make people comfortable, uh, have things ready to go, and sit there and try to enjoy the moment instead of what's going through your mind. Like, I have 50 million things going through my head as I'm listening. And you move from a, cho- a point of, if you're a good producer, I feel, you move from the point of worrying about everything to just going in with full confidence knowing because you're there, you're going to make it, it's going to turn, It's everything's going to be fine. You're going to get the best out of what you can get. Jim Dickinson told me a great story one time. Uh, it just it was in passing. Jim would drop these nuggets of wisdom on you, you know, hanging around the hallway at Arden. But one day uh, I was in doing something else. I wasn't on his session. So I'm by the cook machine. I go, hey, Jim, what, what are you doing? He goes, I'm achieving the highest form of the art of producing right this second. And I go, what? <laughs> and he goes, do you hear that music coming out of Studio A through the door? And I go, yeah. He goes, I'm out here talking to you, but I'm producing that. Because <laughs> producing an absentia is the highest form of the art. They don't know when I'm going to come back in there. So they're in there busting their butts mm-hmm. for me right now, and I'm not even in the room. That's the highest form of the art of of producing and I just and then he just walked on you know and <laughs> it's one of those things guys has to sink in a little bit I was like man he's right you know yeah yeah are they busting their butts because he's Jim Dickinson or did, be, did he become J- Jim Dickinson because he gets everybody but I don't know it's a little bit of both I think yeah um you mentioned the music that uh you heard growing up I want to talk about the Beach Boys God Only Knows okay and God only knows what I'd be without 
What's your first, what was your first impression of that song? Do you remember hearing it for the first time? Yeah, I, I heard that as a, I didn't have the Pet Sounds album myself. Okay. I, I believe I heard that not so much growing up, but when I went to college, um, one of my, one of my sweet mates had it or something and we listened to it and it just struck me as so amazingly interesting in the different parts and stuff. But when I got. Uh, I believe I bought the box set years later, and when I got to the vocals only version, yeah. oh my god, it flipped me out. And then so you go back and listen to it as a whole after that, or just listen to the vocal only version, you just realize how complex and how amazing that recording is, especially since it was probably done on an eight track tape machine. Right, but it's the, the layers that they did um, are just are just beautiful. And uh, plus it was cool that it was the theme song for the show Big Love, which was that awesome HBO series. I forgot yeah. that that was the theme for that show. Yeah. It's, it's been in seemingly countless uh, movies and films over the yeah, years. Yeah, it used to kind of be a hidden nugget, I think. But it's certainly more in the public eye now with all, you know, even the Brian Wilson movie and, right. uh, you know, his whole story is still... You know, very much, much more well known than it was, but that's also one of those things where I swear um, it kind of transports me back in time to imagine what it must have been like during those days in Hollywood on the Sunset Strip, you know, and, right. and just recording in 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 L.A. What was going on on every corner, every studio was just teeming with, and I've been in that room where it's been re- where that was recorded, and it's tiny. It's not as big as this room. Oh, wow. Really? Okay. Mm-mm. It's tiny. <laughs> and that's where the Wrecking Crew did all those songs, you know. And and then plus I got the understanding that a lot of those Beach Boys, a lot of so many hits from so many people, it wasn't their band. It was right. It was the Wrecking Crew. Is there anything special about that room or is it the people that were in it? Mostly the people, I yeah. think. But they it, they adapted and scooted people around till they found that, like, Carol Kay always sat in that chair and played bass, and the drums were always over there. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of historical places like that where they never moved anything once they dialed it in. Motown was like that. Okay. Um, one of the things I learned, and you know, some people have said this is true, some people said no, but I've heard that at Stax that they put the microphones away every night in the mic locker. They took everything down and put them away. Um, I don't know why. They were worried someone would steal something or if they've just a way to keep their mic inventory or I don't know. And my only experience doing that was when I've done some sessions at Sun Studios here in town. And that you had to tear everything down every night because there were tours during the day. Right. Um, I thought I would hate that, but it's really actually pretty cool. You hear, you can hear just oh, so you can put everything back right where it was and you can have your settings written down, how everything was mic'd, where your mic pre's were set. It's going to be a little different on a different night, and I kind of like that. That's so fascinating to me. I um, last record I did here in Memphis is a record called Kids These Days, and the very first day we were tracking my vocal, we had a vocal sound going that I really, really loved. I was doing it with uh, Toby Best at High Low. It's a great and, record. I heard it. Well, thank you. Um, and the next day we set it up identically, and 
it was probably just something in my head, but maybe not. And I was just like, Toby, it sounds a little different. It sounds a little different. And he's like, it sounds great. Just go. <laughs> but I was like, what, what is that thing? What is that little something? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's always, um, there's another story I've told that, that when I was working with Alex Chilton on a record called a man called destruction, we had tracked the song with him in a vocal booth for, so he'd be isolated in case he wanted to keep his tracking vocal. And so we were at the point where he was overdubbing and wanting to fix this or that. And we had a microphone set up on the big floor and I had it baffled off and stuff. He wanted to fix one line in this one song that otherwise was in the booth. So I went out and asked him, I said, Alex, you want me to move the mic back in the booth for consistency's sake? You know, and he took a drag off a cigarette and kind of blew it in my face. He goes, consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. (laughs) And, you know, when I first I was like, man... You know, screw you, dude. And then you start thinking about it. It's like, true. Nobody was, why take 20 minutes, move it, set it back up, dial it back in? It's just a line. Nobody is going to hear that. Right. You're wasting your time. And I just have this thought in my head. Could you please, with sugar on top, just record it. Right. (laughs) Move on. Right. So there was a big truism in that. Um, And it's been pointed out to me, too. That's not an original quote. It's it's a... Alex's version of something that's very similar. To it's that. like an Emerson thing. I, I think. think it is. I think it is. That, that rings a bell. Um, along the same lines, uh, I want to talk about the Beatles' Helter Skelter. Lesser known band, the Beatles. The Beatles. Um, yeah, uh, what. Why this Beatles song? I was a little surprised to see this one. <laughs> there's so there's so many, obviously, that means so much to me. Um, it's the it's the energy. It's the it's also, frankly, the the tie into the whole uh, Manson family killings. Mm. Um, I'm fascinated by those murders. I've read lots of books about it. You know, because when I was a kid, he was the he was the boogeyman. You know. Right. And the kind of cheesy TV movie that was made about it, you know, which I find out factually later is a lot of, you know, a lot of crap, really. Um, But again, it was the power. It was the power of that music. It's just when that guitar starts, there's an instant energy that just blows up till he just screams. Yeah. (laughs) And that's the intro. Yeah. You know, or the first verse maybe, but whatever it's... um, I just love, there's no better example of just raw tension out of the gate until it literally blows up and he screams and starts screaming helter skelter. And, and uh, you know, I don't know the exact history of the re- what day that was done, what, you know, what site was, they did that by itself one day or if they, if they did it after one of their most beautiful mellow songs, I don't know, but whatever they did, something was going on right. and they caught it, you know, for I sure. think, uh, and I could have this wrong, but I think they did it night. They did 19 takes and the one that's on the record is the 19th. Okay. And that's where you get Ringo at the end, just screaming. I've got blisters on my fingers. Like he's had enough. <laughs> yeah. But, it's uh, amazing. I got to go to studio three at Abbey road, uh, two, two falls ago and uh it was kind of a funny story i'd i'd always wanted to go but then i didn't um just because 
I don't know. It's kind of like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I didn't really want to see what was back there. I had it in my head, and I'd read the books, and I'd seen the pictures. and right. Really, it was just foolish. I had a chance to go when I was working with Primal Scream over there, and I said, no, I just don't want to. I don't want to see inside. I want it to remain a mystery. And What a dumb thing, <laughs> I, you know. But but so it was a couple of falls ago, and I was over there with you guys. Right, we we right. took a little side trip after we were done with the Liverpool stuff, and I was staying with my buddy, Andrew Sheps, who's a very well-known mixer, and uh, Susan and I were staying with him. And we'd went to the pub one night and had a few, and we were just up talking. And, you know, I'm like, man, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but on this trip, because I was going to go stay with my buddy Henry in London after that, I'm going to get in to Abbey Road and mm-hmm. see it, because you can't just walk in. You got you know. Right. Somehow I'm going to tell him I'm going to cut a vinyl record there, whatever. I'm getting in. And then Andrew was kind of like, are you through? And I go, what? And he said, I'm working there Thursday. Do you want to come by? And I was like, oh, man. So, of course. So yeah. he was working in Studio 3, actually. And um, so I got to go in, and he called one of the techs named Lester Smith, and he took me everywhere in the back alleys and the hallways and touched the four-track machine that Sergeant Peppers was recorded oh, on. Oh, my gosh. Susan, my wife, said she's never seen me like that before. I, I couldn't talk. <laughs> I, was, I geeked out so hard. I can't imagine. It's like it's like Valhalla. Yeah, and he, the, one of the funny stories they told me, I guess Sir Paul had been in there two or three days before, just popped in. And you've seen pictures of that giant staircase, the control mm-hmm. room's upstairs. And I, how, how old is he now? Anyway, he's, they said he threw his legs over and slid down the banister, just like he used to when he was a kid. Oh, my God. You know? <laughs> Surely like, someone would stop him from doing that. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. He just hopped up, slid down the rail. Woo-hoo. Well, I mean, in your remarkable career as producer, would you have ever crossed paths with George Martin? Not with George Martin. I did meet Sir Paul before. Oh wow! Okay. Um, yeah, that was that was an amazing. I was actually mastering a, a the new big the last Big Star record. Okay. Uh, when I say it was called In Space, the one with the Posies and Alex and Jody, the last one they made together. So it wasn't from the classic era. But anyway, I was mastering at Ocean Way with Alan Yoshida, and I had just got there. He had already had the tapes and was had one set up ready for me to listen to. But I just got there, plopped down, sent out for coffee. We were just visiting and, and just, uh, how you doing? What have you been working on? Blah, blah, blah. And the door, it's like a Saturday Night Live skit. The door flies open and <laughs> Sir Paul jumps into the room like, what's going on? <laughs> and I was like, what? On earth? He was working across the hallway, I guess. And Alan and him had been chatting, I guess, in the hallway a little bit. And he's like, this is your mastering room? And he goes, no, no, this is my lounge. Come on in. So he played him a whole song, you know, and I was I was about to faint because I was like, no, don't, don't play my thing. Play something else. <laughs> And he listened to the whole thing, and he, he slapped me on the back. He was like, did you do that? And I said, yeah. He goes, sounds great, man. Sounds old. Uh, and then he reached down to pet Alan's dog, and we think we think he got him. He bit him. Oh, and no. Like he took a lunge at him and freaked him out a little. He's like, well, does he do that to everybody, or is he catching a vibe off me? He goes, I love animals. I don't even eat them. You know, so it was. You found was, the one creature on earth that doesn't like Paul McCartney. Exactly. Somehow. He's more of a John guy, I guess. I guess. <laughs> John Dog. Um, let's talk about Stevie Wonder, Sign, Sealed, Delivered. I'm yours. Like a fool, I went and stayed too long. I'm wondering if your love's still strong. Ooh, baby. Here I am. Sign, Sealed, Delivered. I'm 
most of I think eight out of the ten songs you sent me came out between 1966 and 1976. Like roughly, how old are you when, say, this song came out? Um, well, I was born in '63. Okay, I'll say it out loud. So, um, you know, I missed a lot of this on the first go round. Right. It wasn't like I said. It wasn't a childhood thing. It wasn't until I got out and. Um, the thing I love about that song is it's to, to me it's it gives me goosebumps every time. It's the bass line, man. Okay, it's just the, and of course Stevie's singing it, but that's one of when I first realized how much I loved it. It's one I sat there and just listened to over and over and over again, and just I don't play, uh, I don't play anything well. I can play piano and guitar, but wow, man, that <laughs> bass line is everything. It's just a yeah. groove, man, and. um I matter of fact, I'll be truthful. I heard, I heard Peter Frampton's version of that song before I ever heard Stevie Wonder's. Wow, uh, how would you compare the two now? Oh, I'm embarrassed about that. <laughs> <laughs> Different bass groove. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't. Uh, I haven't. And I, I doubt if I will listen to Peter Frampton's version of it. But I remember kind of like that's a pretty cool song. But it was on his. I'm in you record that came out after the Frampton comes alive, you know, so everybody had it. It, right. think it just came in the mail, you know? Right. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, yeah, I got, I came around the back, I came in through the back door on that one, but I just, that's one I can just listen to over and over. It just gives me great happiness. Yes. I mean, I've really loved going back and listening to it like kind of intentionally the last couple of days because Stevie Wonder's music, you know, I, I was born well after uh, kind of his most famous albums and iconic albums. And, you know, I just, I don't have memories of a time before Stevie Wonder. It, it feels like all of his famous songs are songs that I've always known. And I'm a little embarrassed to say it while I love his music. I kind of take it for granted in a way. It's not often that I like, I really just kind of sit down and thoughtfully listen to Stevie Wonder. Right. It's just like, Oh yeah, Stevie Wonder. He's great. Yeah. Um, so I, that was one thing that really struck me going back and listening to this song recently. It was just like the bass groove alone. You're just like, Oh my God. And how it's many everything. people have used it as a template since? Yeah. Then, you know, exactly. And again, it's like the wrecking crew. You have those, those guys that were showing up going to work every day, man. Right. And that day they cut that. Right. Wow. Um, Let's talk about, you've mentioned uh, your wife, Susan Marshall, already a couple times. I would love to talk about her cover of I Don't Have to Crawl. I don't have to crawl I could just Okay, that's a that's one of those special recording moments because the reason I wanted to talk about that that I'll never forget. I was actually working at the time at uh, Kingsway Studios, which is in the French Quarter, at the corner of Esplanade and Charter Street, and it was Daniel Lanois' mansion. Okay, a lot of cool records were coming out of there at the time, and um, I, I was working with uh, Tonic, mm. the the heavy group Tonic at the time. We had recorded their tracks at sound city you may have seen that movie about the famous console we, we recorded it on that and then it was time to do overdub so uh i had worked at kingsway on a couple other things and i suggested that they kind of wanted to get out of la and uh so we went there and 
they had a gig. It was Fourth of July weekend, and Susan living in Memphis, it's not that far away. We hadn't seen each other for much for a couple of months, so she came down, and we had the whole mansion to ourselves. Nobody else was there, and so you know, we the microphone, the piano was mic'd up already, and I just ran a dat, and I just said, "Why don't you?" She had been doing a cover of that song. Why don't you just record that to dat so we have it mm-hmm. sometime? And we weren't planning on using it on one of her records or anything, but but it was so beautiful that it did. It's just one of those moments. And if you listen real close, I can't, I don't know, I can't remember exactly where it is, but I, I had a beer that I hadn't opened. And the, Kingsway is just a big open space, like a big living room. There's no control room per se, so the piano was 20 feet away from me. I tried to time it right in the part where she wasn't, where I didn't think any could hear it, but I, I opened a beer. <laughs> Is it audible? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, not that bad, but okay. if you really got in there and listened to it. But it turned, it was just one of those beautiful recordings. I had tears in my eyes when she was done with it. And it's a beautiful song. Rodney Crowell's one of my favorite songwriters. Um, and so we had to obtain the license to put it on the record when uh, her first record was kind of conglomeration. We ended up doing that all over. Like, we got a song we recorded here on an off day or something over here. We mm-hmm. didn't sit down to make a record, but we decided to put that on, and we we uh, contacted Rodney's people to get a license for the song. And we had been out somewhere, and we came home that night, and there was a message on the answering machine. Remember answering machines? How <laughs> old am I? Um, but we hit play, and Rodney Crowell talked for – he left a – two or three minute message about how beautiful he thought that recording was and how how he loved her voice. And he said, I remember he said, my favorite thing in the world is when I happen to write a song and someone else records it and shows it back to me in a way that I forgot I wrote the song and I'm so overwhelmed by the beauty of it. And then you realize, oh, that's my song. I wrote that. Right. Because that's my favorite thing in the world, and that's what you guys did to me. So thank you. And, you know, Susan just had tears running down. That's one of those we never erased, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, um, it's, it's a really remarkable uh, recording, and it's such a, it has such an intimate quality. It has such a um, just very haunting quality almost. Uh you said you did it just in one big room. Um, where, where were you in relation to her? It almost, like when I'm listening to it, I almost feel like, you know, she's in one room of the house and I'm like kind of eavesdropping on her from like a little ways well, come away. Come back to that point too, because that's on another song I want to talk about. But, okay. Um, no, we were, I was probably 20 feet over to the side. The console okay. sat right in the middle of this room. It was the API console that Born to Run was cut on, by the way. Wow. Um, and... The speakers, the big speakers were the speakers that Revolver was mixed on. Oh and there's God. so much cool stuff lying around <laughs> there, you know. Um, but it was it was such an intimate moment in such a giant space, such mm. a huge, huge house. I mean, that place was amazing, amazing, amazing space and haunted, very haunted. Right. Um, all kinds of crazy stuff happened. Um, and I'm not a big ghostbuster or anything but <laughs> there's some crazy stuff that went down you know and and the stories i heard from 
other people. Nothing super dramatic happened while we were there, but yeah, it was kind of, I don't know. You can just feel the history dripping off the walls. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, that building was built. I think it was built before the civil war. Um, you know, so there's these back like secret passages or where the slaves would go or the servants and, you'd have to jump up on a board and do a chin-up, pull yourself up, and there's a table where they would play poker, and they could hide in these places and wow. play poker and stuff. And um, Anyway, the building is – it's a it's real shame that it's no longer um, – Nicholas Cage and um, Lisa Marie Presley bought it when they were married. Oh, wow, and okay. And when they split, it got split. I don't know what it is. I still walk by there. It's, it's lots of great times there, but um, – I remember that night going up on the roof, and you could see all over the city. There were three different fireworks displays going on in different parts of the city, and that was pretty awesome, too. Oh, my gosh. You know, it was it was just one of those great nights, and I'm glad we, you know, I'll just never forget the recording of that. And it's and it did. It just, it was undeniably beautiful. We just, there's no way we couldn't put it on the record. Right. Um, you were talking earlier about kind of the confidence gained over the years working as a producer and kind of learning to trust your instincts. I think a less experienced or um, less deft hand would have maybe tried to add more to that recording. Um, when you when y'all recorded it in the moment, did you say that's it as it is? Did you know then? Okay, yeah, we don't need to, we don't need we, to fuss over this. Exactly, yeah. it's like we caught a moment in time, and that's what you're trying to do all the time, whether it's a solo thing or whether you've got a gospel choir on the floor or whether you've got 12 people all packed in like sardines, try to make it go. Right. Um, that's, that's when you catch it, man. And you're, you know, this is, this is another thing I'm getting into with the vinyl lathe is I'm, I'm starting to do recordings live to lathe. So that's the farthest thing away from isolating everything, overdub, fixing mistakes, and then mixing it at a later time. And, uh, putting your effects on it. You catch it, you make it sound great. You've got to have one guy cat- recording it and catching it, sending it to me. I've got to catch it and work within the the vinyl medium, mm. the limitations of that to get it on there. And we can't play it back and see if we got it right. Six weeks later, when you get the test pressings, you'll know if you got it or not. If you have a... Imagine that stress. <laughs> Without naming names, have it... So you have uh, one of those singer types who's very precious about their um, their notes and their and their takes. What happens if they say, "Oh my gosh, I didn't like that take. We got to you just got to cut another one." Okay, I mean, but you, you have can done? cut scraps. What you do is you tend to rehearse the take a little bit more. But you know how that can go too. When you're rehearsing it, you may have nailed that. You may never get it that good again. Right. And if you play it back, you've destroyed it. So yeah, um, what we typically do is we'll split the signal, be able to listen to it, play back the performance on piece of tape or something okay and so make sure they're happy with the performance and then hope that i got it right going to the disc and sure it's not some big giant pop or some flaw in it if it is you do it again you know right or you'd have multiple takes to try try this one then you know right it's exciting I w- though i want to ask you about Joni mitchell's a case of you i drink a case of you I would still be on my feet. There's a lot of things I, I'd, I'd love to ask about this, but the first one is, okay, Joni Mitchell is a credited producer of this song. Um, Beach Boys, Brian Williams, credited producer. Uh, Stevie Wonder, same. 
Edwin Hawkins, same. Are you trying to put producers out of business? <laughs> I didn't even realize that. Um, man, yeah, that's that's again a case of uh, what I hear in that. It's a case of it's it's, it's a time capsule. Mm. I you know imagine what must have been going on um, in Hollywood and all those guys playing playing with each other. You know, it's just her and a zither and James Taylor on acoustic guitar, right? And her voice, and it's so real, and where she goes with it, um, it's just it's just one of Joni Mitchell's Blue album right. is my favorite album. So I do have that to say. I get asked it all the time, and you know it's such a hard question, and it's hard to to narrow down what are your favorite songs and what reasons, and like we're doing now. Right. But uh, and you're making it very much easier than I thought it would be. Thank you, but. Uh, <laughs> That's just again one of those songs where I've I've put it on when I've been a, away from home or away from Susan and out working on a record that I've been away for a month and it just makes me homesick and um, it makes you know it can bring a tear to my eye mm. at any time just from the sheer beauty and honesty right of the words and her performance and um, I don't have any other Joni Mitchell records. Oh wow! That's, okay, that's the one, huh? I I like some of the other ones, but I just right. So when you were describing your childhood and you had musical parents, but maybe not the best record collection growing up, my experience was the opposite. Uh, no one in my family played any instruments, but my folks were really great music fans, and uh, I think one of my mom's favorite albums of all time was Court and Spark. So I I heard that at a that's very early one. age. Yeah, um, and I've always been a pretty big Johnny Mitchell fan, but it's interesting to hear you talk about uh, your relationship to this song because would you say that these are all songs that you listen to on a fairly regular basis? Yeah. If okay. you were to go into my, you know, YouTube late night listen and you know, it keeps, it keeps, I, I'm not keeping track, but it's keeping track for me. Right. They're yeah. They're in the list for sure. Okay. For some reason I'm, I'm kind of the opposite. The songs that if I made this mix, um, tend to be songs I don't actually revisit that much. For some reason, they keep them special. There's some that I do that too. Yeah. Um, but then you know, every time I happen to hear it, you know, in the background at a party or on the radio or something, I go, "Oh my god, what am I? <laughs> why haven't I listened to this in the last nine months?" You know, it's crazy. I'm the same way. This mix is also brought to you by our featured sponsor, Shangri-La Records. Open seven days a week at 1916 Madison Avenue in the heart of Midtown Memphis. Shangri-La recently celebrated 30 years of slinging music from Memphis, the Delta region, and beyond. The shop is stacked with killer records from classic labels like Stax, Sun, High, Chess, Motown, Atlantic, and Blue Note, to modern indie labels like Secretly Canadian, Matador, Fat Possum, Light in the Attic, Third Man, and many more. You can find them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or shop online and sign up for the store newsletter at shangri.com to keep up with events and sales. Have a service, project, or product you need to get the word out on? Call 901-800-7608 or email info at theoamnetwork.com and ask about our podcast sponsorship packages. I'm curious about Scott Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag. (laughs) 
This is uh, obviously the exception to the rule. A lot of songs on this mix came out, you know, late 60s and 70s, and then we have one from 1899. <laughs> yeah, th- there's there's a main story, because this was a life lesson for me. Um, again, my mother was a music teacher, She and in a small town, she was the small town piano teacher, so... Okay. Um, she taught elementary school music, and then after school, she would have kids would be coming over either with violin or piano and taking lessons from her. Um, that's the path I started down. You know, I started taking piano lessons in third grade, but pretty quickly, you know, there was one other lady in town who gave piano lessons too, and I got sent over there because you know I argued too much. You know, mom would say, do that again, or you didn't do that right. And I, yes, I did, you know. And just being a little shit, sorry. Um, <laughs> no, say whatever you want. Um, <laughs> I will. I, you know, it, uh, so yeah, I, it, it's kind of a bummer in a way, because I had no idea I was going to end up in the music business. It did give me a good foundation, you know, to learn to read music at such a young age. And I was in band and stuff. I played trumpet in, in high school band and, um, but I didn't stick with the piano just because I'd rather be playing sports and it wasn't cool carrying. I hated carrying my music books to school. Right. Um, you know, I just, it had, had I only known, right. you know. But the story with the Maple Leaf Rag in particular, it's a song that my mom could play. And she was really an awesome piano player. And I don't know how old I was. I would be guessing third or fourth grade. I had done something. I was a nonry kid. Um, I had done something that I'd hurt my mom's feelings. I said something mean, or I'd gotten in trouble and lashed back and said something mean. And she sent me to my room, and she sat down to start playing at the piano. And she was playing, she started playing the Maple Leaf Rag, which is a very happy song. Right. And I snuck out of my room and went back, like you mentioned, in eavesdropping. I snuck down and around the corner to listen to her and there was a mirror up in front of the piano and I could see that she was crying Mm. while she's playing this happy song. And it just, Uh it, I'll never forget that image that that's what music does. I just, I just hurt my mom's feelings. I said something I probably shouldn't have. And she's reacting to that and getting her emotions out by playing this really difficult piece of music. Right. Um, And it's, it's, letting her get through that moment with joy and it, it helped ease the pain. That's when I realized the power of music. And that's what I said. I got to have, I got to be able to do that. I love that story. Did you ever learn it on piano yourself? No, it's too hard. <laughs> well, along those lines, when did music become something uh, that transitioned from, I'm a huge fan of it and I love listening to it to This is something I actually want to make a career out of. There was a night, um, and it was my parents' 25th wedding anniversary. I was 16 or 17. I think it was 16. I wasn't allowed to go to rock concerts yet. My buddies had tickets for at the Checker Dome in St. Louis for uh, Journey, but the opening act was Thin Lizzy, and I was way down with Thin Lizzy. Wow. So I faked sick at my parents' 25th anniversary. Told him I needed to go home. I went home. I stuffed my bed. I got one of my mom's wiglets. Remember wiglets or the wigs? <laughs> and I put that so it looked like my hair. Stuffed the bed. 
climbed out my bedroom window down on those big giant TV antennas that we had, crossed the cow field where my awaiting accomplices picked me up. We drove to St. Louis. When I walked in, then Lizzie just took the stage, and I saw Phil line up there with that bass that had that silver pick guard, and it looked like a laser was coming out of his guitar, and I just... I'll never be the same after that moment. I immediately was like, I got to have something to do with this the rest of my life. I made it back home, got in bed, and I got away with it. Right. <laughs> I didn't get in trouble. Had I gotten caught, God knows what I'd be, have turned. But, you know, I was like, the thrill of it, the, you know, the, call it kind of my Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer moment, right. sneaking out of the house and going doing something I'm not supposed to, I'll romanticized it even that much further so your first reaction is like i'm gonna be a rock star probably right. so i'm gonna go get so that's when i got a guitar okay and started trying to learn and i learned pretty quickly that um i mean i always played mostly acoustic stuff but i can play but uh, as soon as i got into the recording program and I'm, that's why i moved to memphis and um actually got an internship at a studio in town and started sitting in the room listening to people who could really play. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't feel badly about it at all. I went, that's what I can do. I'd much rather be behind the scenes. Right. So screw being a rock star. <laughs> I'm going to be a producer or an engineer um, and start making records. That's what I want to do. Right. I thought for sure the end of that story was you were going to come back from the Thin Lizzy concert and find your mom in the middle of the night uh, playing <laughs> Maple Leaf Rag with a tear in her eye. Like, oh, no. She was playing the cowboy song into the boys are back in town. On the... <laughs> oh, it's even better that you got away with it. No wonder. Oh, Although no. They, they do say that whatever you, whatever record or artist you love the most when you're 16 in a way will always be the thing that you love the most. Yeah. Cause it's a, you know, it's a soundtrack to your life. Yeah. Um, but boy, there was some terrible music in the, you know, <laughs> well, especially in the early eighties. I mean, there's a, there's a few good things here and there, but right. I survived the new wave was all the, you know, that was the big thing when I went my freshman year in college, new wave. And I never got on that train. I can't say that I have either. Although it would have been after the fact as well. Um, since we are kind of heading that way chronologically, let's talk about Queen, Somebody to Love. I just love that song. Yeah. It's so I haven't seen the movie yet either. Um, always been a Queen fan, especially Freddie Mercury. Um, and just seeing some of the recorded performances of it. But I can also say one of the best performances I've ever seen was George Michael's singing with Queen. Have you ever seen that? No, no. Oh, my God. And they've got a choir. It's It's amazing. Oh, wow. He nails it. It's to me. It's the best thing George Michael ever that I've ever heard him wow. sing. Wow! And um, yeah, there's some cool YouTube footage footage of that of the rehearsal. He was scared to death. He seemed like he was really, really scared and right. nervous to even step in those footsteps. And he nailed it, man. Um, but 
as a song, the craftsmanship that mm. went into that, I just can't imagine, you know, I don't know what Freddie's process was. Was it the song popped in his head and he just got it or did it build upon it? Same Seems like a lot of his magnanimous stuff built on itself. It yeah. started someplace and then just got bigger and bigger and he would layer his voice a gajillion times. And I have gotten to play around with some of the, the uh, there was tracks going around from uh, You're My Best Friend, multi-tracks going around. I got to play with some of those. And man, it's recorded so well. Roy Thomas Baker, and to get that many voices on that few tracks, um, just amazing. It was an amazing technical feat as well. I could only imagine being in the control room listening to that <laughs> when it got done. You know, um, it's just one of those wow. I, it's I, I love that song. It, I'll stop what I'm doing if it comes on and, and just check it out. Oh, it'll stop you in your tracks for sure. Uh, for the casual listener, how would how would a producer put that many vocal tracks on, you know, say four tracks or whatever? Well, you'd have to – sometimes they use two machines, sometimes they would sync them up. The Beatles started doing that on Sgt. Pepper's. Or if you had a 16-track or a 24-track, I'm not sure what those ended up on. But you would basically do a blend – Record four or five passes and dump them down to one track. Okay. And they're mixed. That's done. You can't undo that. And that takes a lot of guts and boldness that I love mm -hmm. as well. Um, and that's the way a lot of things were. I mean, and so if you didn't know what you were doing or you, if you, if you were under the influence or whatever was going on that, that day and you made terrible submixes of these tracks, it never would have been right. You had to balance those out. And then throw them all together. Another misconception is that more, the more you put on something, or if you layer it twenty five times, it's going to be giant. Freddie knew how to do it. You know, I think he layered it in a way that um, it was all in his head. And I think the same way with Brian Wilson. Back to him, he could have this in his head and describe it well enough to the engineer and producer, or if they were the producers themselves. I don't know, but um, to get it on the tape. Mm -hmm. And then there it is. There you have it forever. I've heard you say before, and I agree, that when it comes to, say, working in Pro Tools or doing anything digitally and all the pros and cons at your disposal, just because you can do, do it doesn't mean that you should. How do you find the balance when you're working on a project? It depends on the, the artist and the, and the music, you know, um, because, you know, I don't. I don't need to make everything I work on sound like 1977 either. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there's some things that that would be great for, but because I love that style of recording and, and the songs were so many great songs from then. But um, just in general, yeah, you sh I think it's a problem because you can have, and it's a problem that people brag about, like, on Beyonce's record, she had 142 background tracks on one song. <laughs> I mean, no way. If I opened up the track thing, and I mean, I don't know, maybe she pays a million dollars a track to do too. Maybe I'd change my tune, but I wouldn't want anything to do with that. Yeah. Um, there's people that are really good at that, and they can have it. But there's, in general, there's, you know, they think, well, I'll record 20 tracks of this part and then 20 tracks of this part, and I'll blend it all together. It's going to be this giant wall of sound, but... After a point, man, you're just shrinking it and phase canceling, and it's just you're you're gonna. And how are you supposed to get anything else in there? It's just too much, right? 
So once again, they smash the crap out of it, remove the dynamics, and it's an assault on your ears and it's fatiguing to listen to. It's, it's, it's a real problem in modern recording, I think. I think you're right. I think it is the thing where even though just a casual listener might not know the technical reasons, I do think that in some intangible way, their ears do get fatigued. Like they can kind of tell a difference. Especially with MP3s. Yeah. You know, and anything in that family, Spotify, you're hearing about 10%. Mm. of the intended audio or the original full file, full resolution file. You're getting about 10% of that. Um, again, my friend Andrew Sheps, who I mentioned earlier, he had a great thing called Lost in Translation. He was doing a travel in the country and showing this. But um, one, of his, one of his things that he does in his presentation real quickly is that he would start off as as to show it as an analogy. There would be a paragraph, you know, in his PowerPoint. It would be a a paragraph that said, like, you know, "Hi, I'm a song. Thanks for the piano lessons, Mom." Da 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 da. And it's just a little paragraph. He goes, "Okay, so everybody in here with a fourth grade education, you can read what that says, right? Are we all together on that?" And everybody's, of course. He goes, "Now I'm going to remove some of the vowels." So next screen, he takes out some of the vowels. He goes, "Okay." especially because you just saw the paragraph a minute ago, you can still fill in the blanks. Your brain will fill in where there should be a vowel. You can probably still read that, right? Yeah, yeah, you could still read it. Because let's take out all the vowels. So then you take out all the vowels. Now it's kind of a jumbled, a jumbled thing of consonants, but the spacings are the same, so you can still make out some words. Your brain's got to work even harder for that. He goes, let's get rid of these spaces. They're wasting space. Now he puts them all together. So you've just got a block of consonants that are gibberish. He goes, that's what you're doing when you're listening to an MP3. Somebody's deciding what they're taking out of the original files. So you can condense it. It can be small. It's convenient. Mm-hmm. You can carry it around in your phone. You can send it over the internet much easier. But it's horrible for the music. Yeah. And I wonder, maybe it's just something we won't know for you know a couple more generations. I do wonder kind of how it permanently affects the way that we hear things. Moving oh, forward. definitely. Definitely, just kind of like on a neurological level or something. Yeah, um, Andrew himself was when they they he part of his presentation went on to be a listening portion, and he said he told me before he did he goes watch people's feet and their heads, mm. and they would play either the Spotify or YouTube resolution all the way up to the ultimate high resolution. When it was number one, it was startling to hear because they were level matched side by side. How terrible that other stuff sounds compared to a full resolution file. But their feet stopped tapping and their right. heads quit bobbing. <laughs> It's physiologically true. Yeah. It does not move you in the same way. Well, uh, let's keep the uh, feet tapping and the head banging in the case of Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath is the song title off of the album Black Sabbath. Oh, no, no, please, God, help me. <laughs> what what is it that resonates about this song for you? Man, just going up into my room and I wasn't supposed to have that record. Okay. And, <laughs> um that song, you know, it's just uh I always loved that song and several years ago, four or five years ago, I was at Lollapalooza and Black Sabbath was back with uh original all all original members except the drummer. But 
they took the stage. And, man, bands used to take the stage in such a magnanimous way, you right. know. And now you just kind of see the guys come in and they're sitting <laughs> on their tuning pedals for five minutes and their tech comes out there. You know, there's no – but, man, boom, the lights go out. Everybody starts screaming. All of a sudden you see this wall of flames projecting in the background. Right. Then the spotlight hits and there's Ozzy in a priest robe, Yeah, you know, singing, what is this that stands before me, you know. <laughs> and it's just like – Yes. It was just so, and it's just such a slow, riff, heavy song. I just, yeah, that's that side of me. I love it. I love it too. I, it's really startling. Like that is a band defining itself. The name mm-hmm. of the band is Black Sabbath. The name of the song is Black Sabbath. And the name of the album is Black Sabbath. And like, I don't think any band could do more in six minutes to tell you exactly who they are. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know that, I don't know, maybe it's like, not in vogue now, or maybe people just don't even think to do it, but bands don't do that now. It's in the rules of rock. You know, have you ever seen the list? No, uh, no. Never start a never start a trio with a married couple and fifty two other rules of rock. <laughs> no. And one of the rules is don't ever name your band after a song and don't ever name your song after your band. Okay. One of my favorites is either tell them, either you tell them or we will. This is not a soccer game. Tell your parents to stay home from the gig. <laughs> <laughs> but there's some great ones in that list, man. It's, it's hilarious. Um, well, uh, I wanted to close by talking about two more tracks. Um, one that you produced, one that you did not. As far as I know, uh, let's talk about Heaven on Their Minds uh, from Jesus Christ Superstar. You've started to believe the things they say of you. You really do believe this talk of God is true. Kind of like Queen, somebody to love. This is a this is operatic. Yeah, Carl Anderson, man, Judas. Um, there'll never be another Judas like Carl Anderson. But when I was a kid, man, I don't know. I I loved the movie. Mm. It it was an amazing thing seeing all these hippies get off the truck loading up their props. It was just an interesting way. And then it, it's they start into it, you know, and the movie ends after the crucifixion of them all taking down the props and loading it back on the bus and right. driving away into the desert. It was all shot in the Holy Land as well. Um, so it's dusty and dirty, and that's the first song of the movie, and it's basically Judas is kind of hanging back, and he's looking at the other disciples following Jesus around. He's starting to gather a crowd. He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. This prophecy is going to be filled. And he's like, hold on, man. What are we doing here? You know, um, this is kind of freaking me out. You know, what's all this God stuff? We, you got some great ideas, but, you know, you're going to, you're going to get, they're going to kill us all. You know, what are you doing? Right. And uh, his vocal performance is amazing. Another thing about that movie that always has bothered me, the sink is terrible. Their mouths don't move to the – it's just sloppily done. I don't think I've seen the movie since I was a child. So yeah. I don't even remember. And that just – I love the movie, but it's it's um, it's like watching a Japanese film with dubs <laughs> on almost. And it made, it's always bummed me out. I was like, come on, guys. can Go back in the editing room and maybe sync that up. But it's – I don't know. It's distracting a little bit. But that's one of the greatest vocal performances I think I've ever heard. He, Carl Anderson was just amazing. Um, and I remember my parents, they went to, um, what was it called? St. Louis, the Keel Opera House, and saw the production when I was a kid. And they came back, told me about it. And 
Uh, it fascinated me what they told me about the performance because they said, you know, after the show, they were just walking down the street back to the car, and there was the guy that just played Jesus and Mary Magdalene and Judas walking down the street to go get something to eat. And something stuck in my head. They said uh, Judas in that performance was wearing a uh, number 32 football jersey, an O.J. Simpson jersey. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my. When you said 32, I was like, oh, God, here it comes. It's O.J. But anyway, yeah, it's one of those where I just, you know, I can go down the rabbit hole on that that movie. But um, Well, I mean, you were 10 when you when you saw this, right? Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine. That must yeah. have been really eye-opening. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. And it was, you know, it was different, from, way different than, you know, it, people were pissed off about it. It was sacrilegious and... right. They didn't like the way that story was being told in that way, and that's everything I liked about it. Right. Yeah, my life would have gone very differently if I'd seen that at age 10 instead of like Lion King or whatever it was, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's Your mix is very eclectic, uh, as are your credits um, throughout your career, but one through line is that these are all... These are all great songs. They they stand out as songs... um, at least as much, if not more, um, than the production. And I'm wondering, is that kind of the way that you listen to pieces of music first? Um, are you always, say, for example, if you're considering working with a new artist, what makes the decision for you whether or not you're working with them? Is it songwriting first? Is, is it the voice first? Is it? It's an emotional feeling. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, some of my some of my favorite demos that I've ever gotten. I remember, I remember one in particular came in and I got it on a cassette tape. I'd always tell people I don't care what it sounds like as long as I can. I'd like to be able to hear the lyrics and the the vocal line. But if it's just you and acoustic, that's fine as long it allows me to use my imagination mm-hmm. where I might help guide you or to to act, interact with the artist. So like, okay, here's the bare bones of it. What are you hearing on this or? Here's what struck me, you know, um, and make sure that we have common ground because I don't like to make records that are about my vision. I want to try to bring the best out of what you want. And I, you know, I'm full of ideas, but um, there's been just as much stuff where, and it's hard to do, but I'll get something and uh, I just have to call them back and say, I'm sorry, I didn't respond Mm. I didn't respond to the music, man. But there was one. This is a great timely thing to ask because um, just last weekend, Susan was getting ready to do a background vocal session, and and Matt Rossbang was producing. They were doing it at Phillips, and he wanted them to know the song. He wanted Susan and Reba on the floor singing the background part, so they Mm. had a little homework to do before the session ever started. And... She had, uh, they'd sent some files, so she just had it on her crappy little computer speakers, and she hit play, and I went, I was across the room working on something else, and went, who is that? And she told me, and I went, that's amazing. That, you're, man. Wow. And his name was Foy Vance. Okay. Um, they went in and made a record with 12 people on the floor, two mm-hmm. days. Wow. And, you know, I'm around the corner cutting vinyl, so I, it's a unique perspective. I kind of get to hear things come around the corner, and as there, as when I'm not on a session, you know, and Matt's doing some or somebody else, I'll get to hear these songs being built and developed, and, you know, sometimes they're running over the same thing a thousand times, and 
that's not the fun part. I <laughs> shut my door, but um, I could just hear, you know, as it was going down, it was, wow, wait till you hear this record. I mean, and I can't even say why. It's like, he's got a good voice, um, but it wasn't some complex song structure. It was mm-hmm. simple. His lyrics were killing me. Yeah. And and delivered so simply and beautiful with the orchestra with the uh orchestration that he had around him. It was just great. When so. you're when you're um going in to start producing an album, do you see yourself as a collaborator at the outset? Um like I've heard Rick Rubin kind of describe himself. He's like, I don't even I'm not a sound engineer. That's never been my background in my job. He's kind of like a creative Sherpa. You know, he, he knows what we're trying to go for and he just kind of guides the artist through the process. Ideally, is it a collaboration in that way for you? Yeah, I try to let it be, but I also, um, I think something that's changed over the years or something that, uh, that I've learned is, you know, you can be too nice mm. as well and come out with some lackluster thing when you should have spoke up. So if you hear something that you, you really watch you can give them, give them leeway. You don't know all the answers. Sometimes they may end up someplace and be like, wow, I didn't think that was going to work, but mm. great idea, dude. That was amazing. Um, but you also got to know, especially in these days of smaller budgets, to if you watch them, they're starting to go off into the ditch, you might want to stop and pull them back in or have a talk with them and say, you know, we'll go ahead and realize your ideal here and finish this part of it if you want to, but I don't think this is working out yeah. on this song. Maybe we could try. Maybe we should try this, and that's something I got to learn from all the great producers that I that I worked with. Um, Tom Dowd, especially, he we used to laugh all the time because he would just say, "Just record the damn thing. We hate it later," you know. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Instead mm-hmm. of, I'll try to stop that kind of stuff. If they're if it's a band and they're a democ- they think they're a democracy and there's arguing before how we're going to go do this song or here's what we need to do and there's differing opinions and starts, they start arguing and then it becomes about, well, you never clean your socks on the bus, right. you asshole. You know, you, you can, I can stop that pretty quick. And what I do in those situations, I'll say, let's record it this way and record it the other way. By the time you guys get done arguing, it'll be pretty obvious, I think, to everybody right. which way we go. Rather than, and that's where the Tom Dowd saying comes in, you know, just record it. And now we can listen back instead of this idea that you you have in your head that you're just going to argue about. Now you're digging in your heels, being stubborn, and you're just creating ill will. And if you go out there and do it with a pout on your face, you're not going to try. So the idea you don't like right. isn't going to sound good. And if you win the argument and you come back in and you're a jerk and say, see, I told you so, then that's not cool either. So for the harmony of the host's session yeah um i do try to be a collaborator and there's also so much that goes on behind the scenes before i ever step foot in the studio people don't see that you know i do my homework i chart things out and so i can talk intelligently about the song i know that it's verse chorus verse chorus bridge verse chorus outro i know the form of the song so and i usually have that kind of stuff written out more or less and if I know that I want to change the structure of the song or want to ask the band to try something that I think will make the song more succinct um, or just make a better a better recording, right. 
we'll start there and I'll, I'll mention it to him. We can just run through it and see like, yeah, man, it's one of the biggest common mistakes is long intros, man. Just, yeah. <laughs> and I learned that from like when I would pitch bands, I'd go to meetings in LA and some band I'd worked with and I'd go to the A&R guy's office and I'd give him the CD and put it in. And man, if you're more than eight bars in for the intro, you're looking going, yep. God, start singing something. How did I let this? This is an hour to sing. I hadn't heard the voice. He's already getting bored, right. you know? So, um, now I can say from the artist side, that makes a world of difference. I remember the the single that we did, kind of A and B side, Never in Love and Always in Love, years ago at Arden, um, just sitting down with the band in pre production. Uh, you had it charted out in more detail than I did. <laughs> Never in love, that is. And and you're like, you know, I really s- spent some time with this because, you know, this is maybe a little over four minutes. I was like, is there something that we can cut? But listening back to the demo, I don't think that there is anything we can cut. And I'm just like, that was eye-opening for me. And I knew that I was in good hands in that moment because there's nothing worse than spending a lot of time working on a song and getting it just the way that you want it and then realizing, oh God, the guy that's about to play this part or hit record on it is just hearing it for the first time. <laughs> you know, that can be terrible. But you know, there's another the great example of that very thing, and this is a very Memphis thing. One of the things I love about recording in this city is the when you cast the characters, there is a real sense of um it's very different than Nashville in the sense of, you know, there everything is charted out for every they have union guys do it. They use the number the Nashville number system right. and everybody knows what they're gonna play. And I had an artist tell me one time he was recording in Nashville and had the best guys on the floor, you know, they're going, he's through the first verse, through the first chorus, second verse, he just completely blows it. And so he's like, all right, everybody stop. Hey guys, stop. Hey, you know, and nobody's, he's not in, nobody's even listening to him in the headphones. Right. He goes, I realized at that moment, you know, and they get done with the track and they go, my mine's great, man. Next song. Right. Right. And he's like, so they're not even listening to me, you know? Here, there's more of that. There's more of the sense of I feel like these musicians that we we work with in the studio a lot have a real sense of um, not getting in the way, serving the song, right, and super fast about it and picking up on stuff. And one of my favorite stories, I was working on a record with Rob Junkless, and a lot of his songs are in. He writes in open tunings and mm-hmm. things like that. So. Um, he he doesn't speak musically. He plays by the dots, as he says, you know, and they'll figure out what key it's in and then go from there, blah, blah, blah. And this one session, we were going big with this. We had three guitar players on the floor, two bass players, two drummers, a cello, and stand-up bowed bass, and all happening at once. And so we had our little, you know, the yellow legal pad, and Rob's a very passionate guy, and he'd be in the control room and he'd be down on one knee playing it on acoustic and like, okay, and this, and here comes the chorus, da, da, da. And he'd sing the whole thing with his eyes closed, you know, and they were all making their notes and they'd go out and they would play it mm-hmm. like in two takes, they'd have it. After about the third track, I remember going out to look uh, at one of the guitar players music stand and I picked up his legal pad and it was a picture of a cow. <laughs> And I, I love that, you know, just like, yeah, it's, he wasn't even writing the changes down. He was listening. Yeah, he was listening. And it was an exactly. open droney kind of song. So he just knew to jump in a little bit and he was playing the perfect stuff for it. He was supporting it with chords when he needed to and just not playing. Exactly. And it didn't need it. Exactly right. A quick tangent, but you mentioned uh, our time in Liverpool. Um, it was like summer 2017, something like that. And 
they had the big anniversary party for like the garden concert where the quarrymen played originally oh, yeah, at the and, church and, and paul had met john uh that day so there was like a you know many stages of beatles cover bands playing it was a gorgeous afternoon and i was just kind of sitting there like soaking up the sun drinking a beer and you sidled up next to me and we sat there watching one of these beatles cover bands play for a while and i just heard you go that's got to be about the fucking worst drummer i've ever seen in my life <laughs> <laughs> and and i of course bust out laughing you're like i guess we're pretty spoiled being in memphis aren't we and i said yeah yeah we sure are and that we are I I, it just really rings true every time i'm on tour um that uh in ways sometimes a little bit bad but mostly good uh there's something in the water here there's just a lot of native talent um that we're blessed with there really is and it's encouraging to me with things like the stacks academy and things i I hope that we're doing enough to nurture the the younger people Mm. in this tradition i spoke at a we did a career day over at stacks academy a couple months ago and i went in to talk to them about vinyl and manufacturing and just about in general, not to try to be too technical, but, and I, I would like to, you know, poll the audience and, you know, these were all high school kids down to fifth grade, I think. And after talking to a couple of groups, I'm like, how many of you have ever listened to a vinyl record? Not one. Yeah. And so that just told me, like, you know, when I came home from that, I called Pat Mitchell. And I've since spoke to Isaac Daniel. I'm like, we're going to get some record players over there. Because yeah. these kids need to know the, the joy of, and I'm not doing it so they can come work with me someday. They just <laughs> right. need to know the joy and the experience of taking this thing out of a, you know, square foot of artwork that they can stare at, putting it on there, knowing how to clean the record, drop the needle. Right. And it invests the listener for 20 minutes while you listen to the side. They need to understand, they need that. Maybe they don't like it. Maybe they'd rather right. have their earbuds in and skateboarding while they did it, hearing the music. That's cool too. But um, I want to at least do something if we get, you know, so I'm, my mission right now for them is to find uh, some, everything from some cheaper models, I won't name brand names, but to yeah. on up to like at least one really nice, stereo system because as you know when you when you listen to a vinyl record on one of those amazing systems right. it's it's i still can't describe it I, it's unbelievable it is completely different experience and just the experience of listening to vinyl is a different sensory experience it asks more of you than simply listening to an mp3 um, and that's encouraging to yeah. me because it means people still care right about whatever emotion that is evoking in them to to exactly. listen it's still there still in us as human beings, but, you know, we've only been recording our songs as human beings for 130 years or something like that. Right. It's insane when you think about it. And, um, you know, till then it had to be performed till you could hear it or have people over to your house and sit around circle and play it or in church. Right. Um, So recording is still, I I almost think... um, that we went too far, mm-hmm. but I think we that too far is still there. It's still convenient. You still, you know, the internet's getting faster. Da 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 da. The five G thing's supposed to blow everything out of the water. Um, but uh, there's it. Vinyl was this total pushback against that, right? For the right reasons, even though they didn't know what the right reasons. It's fun again, right? It, and I can just say from my experience, I. 
when I'm touring is digital or vinyl sales. Um, and I sold vinyl, but like people weren't really interested in CDs, uh, at least these days. Um, so everybody tells me, and you can charge more for your vinyl. Exactly. And they, don't, they don't bat an eye. Right, exactly Try right. to sell your CD for 10 bucks, and they're like, eh. <laughs> Yeah, is, is this a coaster? What, what am I looking at? <laughs> um, Jeff, I close every episode by uh, talking to the guest about um, a song they wrote or produced. And I want to talk about Corey Brannon, um, an artist that you produce. His first two records, The Hell You Say, 12 Songs. I'm an enormous fan of Corey's and have been. From the jump, um, I really could have picked a song at random, but I want to ask you about a track off of The Hell You Say called Spoke Too Soon. But I spoke too soon. because it strikes me as a little bit of an exception to the rule of that album. Um, so much of the album is built around kind of what we come to expect from Corey, at least live, uh, acoustic guitar and vocals. Um, mm -hmm. And with some arrangement on top of it, or in some cases, none. Uh, Spoke Too Soon either has a drum machine at one point or has some drums that are made to sound like a drum machine at one point. It's a different type of arrangement. And I'm just... I guess I want to start here. What was your first impression of Corey? How'd you come to produce the hell you say? Um, I was at the, I saw him at the flying saucer. Okay. Downtown. Um, and I was there to see somebody else and they invited this kid up from the audience and let him play two songs. And, um, he blew me away. Mm. They were amazing songs. And he was scared and he was nervous and wide-eyed, <laughs> which was all very charming to me. Mm. I didn't know it's – and I don't do this, but I, I walked up to him afterward and I said, I don't know what you've got going on, and I'm not the kind of person that comes and jumps in the middle of somebody else's thing if you're already recording with somebody else. But if you're not, I'd like to talk to you about working with you because um, I really hear something in you, and uh, your songs that I've heard are great. I'd love to hear more. And I don't think if he knew, I don't, I don't think he knew who I was, that I was a, you know, local engineer, producer guy or whatever. But, uh, he was very, hum probably too humble, <laughs> you know, oh man, those are, that's, you know, those weren't even my best song, you know, whatever. <laughs> but we, that's where Corey and I started our relationship. And then I started going to hear him and just the songs were just pouring out of him at that time. Mm. And, uh, he actually had been doing something um he had been recording with posey hedges he just kind of started so some of the record was already in the can okay and i came in and uh took it over and and finished it for him and uh, that's back when i had a studio at my house as well okay so he didn't have any money and you know and so we we did things on a very cheap level but um uh yeah, song, yeah, that's how we started down the road. Songs like Spoke Too Soon or There Are um, Like Secretly Enamored off of 12 Songs, there, there are these really interesting tracks where it seems as if maybe um, there had to have been a little bit more collaboration between producer and artist there because it, it's not kind of conventional singer-songwriter arrangement going on. Right, and he, he really wanted to, you know, by his second record, understandably so, even he wanted to push that mm. even more. 
those two albums are are remarkable and uh thank you he's i've a meant a lot it, well he's yeah he's one of the best and has certainly impacted my songwriting over the years um jeff i could talk to you all day about songs but um we'll cap it there thanks so much for joining me today you're welcome thanks for having me yeah and there you have it y'all my name is chris milam and thanks so much for listening to the mix another thank you to jeff powell for being an amazing guest thanks again to our presenting sponsor audible.com and our featured sponsor shangri-la records the mix is produced by the oam network in memphis tennessee and is available on itunes spotify and stitcher thanks y'all see you next time The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.